And I want to read from the book of Luke, chapter 12. I am really, the, the more I, I am in this series, the more I see that I need to be in this series. And I've just been delighted how a number of people who, after the first week, were pretty confused and maybe upset, but now are, are kind of getting more clarity about uh, what it is that, that we're talking about. And uh, it's a very, very foundationally important message. Luke chapter 12. Jesus is uh, doing some teaching, and someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Now, you need to know that in Jewish culture, all the inheritance went to the firstborn, and uh, if, if the second and third and fourth and so on born were going to get any of that, it was up to the good graces of uh, the firstborn. So this guy is trying to leverage Jesus' authority. Maybe his older brother is one of the disciples. Who knows? Right? You know, but he's trying to get him to for, force him to share the inheritance. And it was kind of a legal issue. There were some in the culture who thought that law that gave all the inheritance to the firstborn was unjust. But Jesus said to him, friend, who made me to be a judge or arbiter over you? What Jesus is saying there is, do I look like your lawyer? And Jesus said to him, I'll tell you this, I'm not going to weigh in on that issue. The way you've, you, you put it out there, I'm not going to weigh in. I'm not going to give God authority to one side or the other. What I will do is give God authority to this teaching. Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And here we see Jesus, as he always did in the Gospels, wisely uh, stating the, the, the unique kingdom thing that he comes to bring. Now, he may have had an opinion about one brother or the other or what should be done, but it, as the distinct presence of the kingdom here on earth, he says the distinctly kingdom thing, and he doesn't bite the bait on being polarized on that issue. Who, who, who set me over, judge over that? You've you got to work that one out. But however you work it out, I'll say this to you and I'd say it to your brother, be careful of all kinds of greed because it will eat you alive. I want to read another passage, not from Scripture, but from a man who sometimes his writings seem close to Scripture. Uh, I, I just love the thinking of this guy because he agrees with me. Uh, C.S. Lewis. And uh, this comes from his book, Screwtape Letters, which some people in the church are studying as part of our institute uh, class. And here we have a senior demon named Screwtape trying to teach a younger demon, his nephew actually, uh, about how to trap people uh, in hell-bound journeys. And so it goes like this. Whichever he adopts, and, and, and here he's talking about patriotism or pacifism, and this is written right during the Second World War in Britain. You just got to know that. Whichever he adopts, patriotism or pacifism, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of the partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage in which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism because it's capable of doing both. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you've almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him. He trusts them more than prayers and sacraments and charity, his word for love. Provided that's happening, he is ours. In fact, the more religious on those terms he is on his cause, the more securely ours he is. I could show you a pretty cageful down here. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. 
Wow. Let's pray. Can I get some intercessors around the auditorium? Keep me covered in prayer. Thanks. Father, again, we pray as we've prayed the last two weeks. We pray this week. Let your kingdom come. Your unique, distinct, foolish to the world, power underneath kingdom. Let it come in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives as it is in heaven. And may we, Lord, see and be attracted to and give ourselves over to this unique kingdom. And may there be no competitors to this unique kingdom. Help us, Lord, to depollute our thinking, to see the purity of your kingdom, and to feel the radical, radical call of your kingdom in our lives. Make us your uniquely equipped and empowered kingdom people. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So there's two kingdoms we've been talking about the last two weeks. There's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of the world. There's the kingdom of power over and the kingdom of power under. The kingdom of the cross and the kingdom of the sword. Two very distinct kingdoms. The ultimate one who's ruling the kingdom of the world is Satan. He's the architect of all power over. He delights in oppression. He's the God of this age and the principality and power of this air who has authority over all the kingdoms of this world. He controls the entire world, it says, according to 1 John 5, 19. And yet God uses the kingdoms of this world for one good purpose, and that is to preserve law and order. At least that's their function from God's perspective. Some do it better than others, but that's how he uses them. So there's some God stuff and some demonic stuff in all the kingdoms of this world. The ploy of the enemy is to try to, as Screwtape says here, the senior demon, is to fuse the two kingdoms, or at least to get, them, uh, to get the kingdom of God, that unique kingdom of God perspective, the power under kingdom, to get it compromised by, two, by being too closely aligned with the kingdom of this world and perhaps even making it subservient to the kingdom of this world. To fuse our loyalty, our singular loyalty to God and to Jesus Christ and to the work of his kingdom, to fuse that loyalty to the loyalty of something else, a cause, a state, a country, a symbol. Because when that happens, we compromise the kingdom of God. There's a biblical word for this, and it's called idolatry. When our worth, our sense of significance, our sense of well-being, our sense of security, our ultimate sense of value, when it comes from anything other than God, we are involved in idolatry. And so when we get worth and our identity, our sense of, of, of being right comes from being American as opposed to Iraqi or being Democrat as opposed to being Repu Republican, we're, invo we're involved in a form of idolatry, no different than a person getting life because uh, they're, they're a Baptist rather than a Lutheran or a person getting life because they're an openist theologian rather than a Calvinist. See, that all is, we're sucking life out of something that is not God and that is idolatry. And for kingdom people, what we've got to know is that our worth and our identity, our sense of significance, our sense of value, our sense of purpose is to come from Jesus Christ and from Jesus Christ alone. Amen? He's the source of our life. We are not to be deriving it from other things. Now, this isn't just this, this problem of fusing the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the world is not just a problem of the conservative right 
It's a problem of the left as well. It's, it's found all over the place in this culture. I uh, mentioned last week, I believe, about this sermon I heard oh, 12 years ago or so that was a wonderful sermon and, 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 and freedom in Christ and all this, but it ended by saying that uh, George Bush Sr. was anti-Christ and no one who voted for him could call himself a Christian. That's the kind of fusion I'm talking about. I'm sure you believe very strongly, this person I'm talking to now, I'm sure you believe very strongly that, that your candidate's better than George Bush, but let's keep the kingdoms distinct, and when we fuse them together, nothing but problems happen. And I am worried, frankly, about the level of uh, fusion that is going on in our culture. It, it's, it's not a new thing, but it seems to be an intensifying thing. I heard a politician recently quote John chapter 1, verse 4, about the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. And he referred to it to America. America is the light shining in the darkness, but the darkness will not overcome it. And see, I worry because that's basically equating, on biblical authority, America with Jesus Christ. And I don't doubt that we've got some good light to shed, but it's not the light of Jesus Christ. And the way that the nations of this world shed their light is not the way Jesus Christ shed his light. He shed his light by going to Calvary and dying. There's no nation that's going to do that for its enemies. And I worry about this fusion because now God loyalty gets fused with national loyalty and we got ourselves in a serious mess. Now there are five distinct disastrous consequences that happen as a result of this. I went over two last week. I'm going to go over another two this week. I'm not going to get to the, the, the fifth one. I hope I get to the fourth one. Uh, just by way of review, disastrous consequences that happen when we fuse the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the world. Uh, the power over kingdom with the cross kingdom. Number one, we compromise our witness for Jesus Christ. Because the primary witness we have is our willingness to lay down our life for our enemies, to bless those who, who persecute us, to turn the other cheek. God wired in, it into the DNA of the church, as I said before the offering, that the kingdom of God goes forward by, ourselves, by our sacrificial love. When we replicate Calvary, the world will know that he's for real when they see his reality in our life. That's why the command of the kingdom is, 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 is very simple, very straightforward. Be Jesus to people. Uh, repeat Jesus' love to people. Be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ toward all others. But you see, by definition, by definition, the kingdom of God happens whenever things look like Calvary. And by, hap by definition, the kingdom of the world is happening whenever things look like Caesar, whenever things look like the kingdom of this world. So by definition, a nation can't be Christian in any kind of kingdom of God sense. You can no more have a Christian nation than you can have a Christian flower plant or, or Christian bicycle or, or Tostito or something. It, uh, uh, you're confusing categories there because the kingdoms of this world are power over, whereas the kingdom of God is power under. And the tragedy is that when we fuse those two kingdoms together, then people look at the power over tactics of a nation and they think that that's Christianity. And now... They block off the genuine message of the kingdom of God on the basis of what they thought was the kingdom of God when a nation had power over on them. And one of the reasons why there are major segments of the world today that we have trouble reaching is because of this confusion. Oh, the Christian nation does this to us. They exploit us. They, whatever you want, and now they identify that with Christianity and they're blocked off to it. For the sake of the kingdom, for God's sake, we need to say as loud as Jesus did and as clear as Jesus did to Pilate, his kingdom is not of this world. It's a radically different, distinct kind of kingdom. The second thing that happens when we fuse the kingdom of God with the kingdom of this world in America 
is that we lose our distinct missionary focus here in America. We need to understand that almost every culture has its own version of, of a civic religion. In some parts of the world, it's a, they have a civic form of Buddhism or a civic form of Hinduism. It's a social function. It's just part of the culture. Our culture, the official civic religion, is a, a deistic form of Christianity, the belief that there is a God, but it never intervenes in the world. And that's why we, in this culture, we've got a whole lot of professed religion that's making absolutely no difference in people's lives. And if we think that that civic religion, uh, the praying before a football game, the social function of religion, in God we trust and the coins. If we think that that's almost the kingdom of God, then we will spend a whole lot of energy trying to tweak the civic religion, trying to polish the civic religion, trying to protect the civic religion. I submit to you that the civic religion is our problem. It's not part of our solution. The problem is that we then, uh, in doing that, we just reinforce this idea that Christianity is this civic religion. It's a bunch of public duties, you know, performances before football games, and, and in God we trust on the coins, and maybe going to church on Easter and Christmas if you're really feeling spiritual. But see, that's the problem that we're up against. That's not part of our solution. Tweak it however you feel led in terms of what's good for the culture, but we've got to be people who see past that. Pull back the veneer and see what's really going on. And when you do that, you realize that we are in as uh, non-Christian a nation as Cambodia or India or any other place. If you mean by Christian, which we, we, we should mean, and that is the distinct kingdom of God. But if we buy the veneer, if we think the veneer is the real thing, then we think of missions as what goes on over there, over there, or, you know, and we send missionaries out. And we stop living like missionaries, which is another reason why we get so involved in things that really aren't about our distinct identity as kingdom of God people. Christian, you are a missionary, as much here as if you were in Indonesia or Cambodia or everywhere. And we've got to see the world and, and, and our culture in those terms. We are people with a mission. And every day there are people around us who need us to carry out that, that unique mission. We, as much as any missionary on this planet, need to heed the words of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he says, A good soldier does not become overly entangled in civilian affairs, in civic affairs, but is always seeking to please his commanding officer. We've got a job to do, and it's about replicating Jesus to people. The third thing that happens when we too closely align the kingdom of the world with the kingdom of God is that we invariably end up trusting power over rather than power under. Power over is so commonsensical. It makes so much sense. It, you know, there's a cause and effect relationship that you can see. The natural mind gravitates towards power over. It's the strategy of the flesh. Power under is silly to the natural mind. Paul says it's the foolishness of the cross. It's foolish to the natural mind. And uh, when we get too closely aligned, that common sense perspective begins to pollute our distinct kingdom of God perspective, and we end up trusting power over rather than power under. One more reason why we're inclined to think that we're doing the kingdom of God when we are uh, tweaking the system and trying just to improve the kingdom of the world. We think that our, the hope of America and the hope of the world is uh, more righteous people passing power over laws over unrighteous people. We need to constantly remind ourselves that the hope of the world and the hope of America is not found in laws. It's not found in legislation. Do that, vote that, act that as you feel led in the kingdom of the world. They, act your, they ask your opinion, give it. But we've got to know that from a kingdom of God perspective, the hope of America and the hope of the world is involved is in the, the body of Christ being the body of Christ. It's in the body of Christ acting like Jesus Christ. The hope of the world is the power under kingdom. That makes no sense to the world. It makes perfect sense to God. That's the mustard seed kingdom, the power under kingdom. That's the hope of the world. 
When we get addicted to power over, we tend to apply it everywhere. Once you smell the, the sword, it's hard to put down the sword. And so not only do we exercise power over out there as a church, but we tend to do church as power over. When you try to treat a nation like a church, you end up treating a church like a nation. And so we begin to trust power over tactics inside the church. And if you've been wondering why churches so often are filled with uh, social pressure and laws and legislation and, and oughts and shoulds and gotta do's and guilt tactics and shame tactics and, and those kind of things to try to coerce a certain kind of behavior, I think you've just found your explanation. We trust power over instead of God working in people's hearts. I had a person write me last year uh, in response to that love series that went on forever. Uh, that God gave me. And at one point he said this, so are you just saying that we're just supposed to love the homosexual and trust that God's working in his heart? I want us to look at that statement. We're just supposed to. I'm wondering, number one, why uh, you only apply this question to homosexuals. Uh, you don't seem to be worried about just trusting God for greedy people or self-righteous people or people involved in patriotic ideal, uh, idolatry. Uh, let's apply it everywhere. But what really concerns me is the word just. Are we just supposed to trust God? Like that's, a, that's the little thing. We need to exert power over. My response to him was something like this. What do you mean by just? Dude, trusting God and loving people, that's everything. I mean, that's the whole kit and caboodle. That is the kingdom of God. To trust that God will use our outrageous Calvary-like love to work in people's hearts, to do what only God can do, and that's changed the inside of a person. That is the kingdom of God. That's how God transformed me. That's how God transforms you. It's not from the outside in. It's from the inside out. That is everything. So yes, we're going to trust God. Yes, we're just going to love people. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. We trust it to do every other kind of sin. Why? We're no different than the homosexual or we're no different than the greedy person or the self-righteous person or the patriotic idolatrous person. All of us are changed from the inside out if we're genuinely changed. Yes, you can tweak the outside of a person, polish them up and create a nice veneer, but that's not what we're interested in. We want to see God genuinely change people and that happens on the inside. God working in people's, in people's lives. Laws and guilt and shame tactics and pressure and those kind of things, they can tweak the outside and send all the problems into hiding so that things actually look a little bit better for a while. But that is not genuine transformation. We trust God working in people's lives. Listen, if God doesn't exist and we can't trust him, let's close up shop now. Yeah. But I'm wagering my life on the reality of God working in people's life. The person responded back to me, so this means that you're never going to preach that homosexuality is sin. You're never just going to preach out of the Bible. Yes, that's right. That's what I said, isn't it? <laughs> but look, of course. You say, as we're dealing with the word in appropriate context, you say homosexuality misses the mark. But you've got to know in the same breath that I want to say homosexuality misses the mark, I want to say that patriotic, patriotic idolatry misses the mark, and greed misses the mark, gluttony misses the mark, uh, saying fool to your neighbor misses the mark, un not forgiving your enemies, that misses the mark, harboring bitterness in your heart, that misses the mark, gossiping about people, that misses the mark, thinking slanderous thoughts about people, that misses the mark, uh, speaking meaningless words, that misses the mark, <laughs> all of that misses the mark. And the reality is this, we're all sinners who are saved by God's grace, and that grace is in the process of transforming it. What we're not going to do is to pick out one little pet sin that most of us don't commit and use power over on that little pet sin so we all can feel righteous about it. 
What we're not going to do is go looking for specks when we, when we know we have two by fours in our own eyes. What we are going to do is be proclaiming that it's God's mercy and God's grace that allows any of us to stand before him. And I will work with you and you will work with me as God in his love works through all of us and transforms us inch by inch. So yes, we're going to trust God using our love, self-sacrificial, non-judgmental love towards one another to work in people's hearts and bring about the kingdom of God. We're going to trust power under more than we trust power over. Trusting power under more than trusting power over. But that's the very thing that gets confused if we begin to fuse the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the world. The fourth disastrous thing that begins to happen when we too closely align our thinking with the kingdom of the world is that we let the world, we let the kingdom of the world set our agendas. Man, does this happen a lot. They get to define the terms of the debate. When the guy came to Jesus, he had his agenda. Here's your choices, Jesus. You either side with me or, or my brother. Now, there's a lot of lawyers listening in on this because this has been kind of a hot topic. Where do you weigh in? Where does God weigh in on this, on this debate? Here's your choices. And Jesus basically said, I, 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 I reject your choices. I'll, I'll give you a third alternative. However you deal with that issue, you worry about your heart. You take care of it to guard against greed. He doesn't bite the bait. He doesn't let... The, the lawyers of his time, the, the political situation of his time, define his agenda. But my worry is that the church often does this. Uh, the, the kingdom of the world sets out the issues, sets out the proposed solutions, fights over it, and the church then accepts that way of looking at the problem. And the problem is that in the kingdom of the world, most of the conflicts are unresolvable. If you mean by unresolvable, if you mean by resolvable, things that good-hearted, uh, well-intentioned, reasonable people can agree on. You can't agree on it. The way the world sets out the terms of the debate, they're, they're, the, the, the best solutions are ambiguous, meaning that reasonable, good-hearted people can disagree with them. The way the world sets out, the way the kingdom of the world sets out the issue, it's always because it's a power over kingdom. It's a win-lose equation rather than a win-win equation. So people don't work together for the common good. They rather fight each other over their solutions about the common good. And they polarize, and now the goal is to win, and to win means you've got to lose. And so in certain contexts, we will use bombs or bullets to win. In other contexts, we'll just use words. We'll use slogans. We'll use propaganda. Because you've got to rally the troops. You've got to infuse them with emotion. And so you demonize your enemies. We're the right ones. They're the wrong ones. We're the righteous. They're the unrighteous. And, and, and the, the, the kingdom conflicts get polarized like that, and it's unresolvable. And when the church buys into that, well, we just accept that whole unresolvability, and we polarize, and the devil laughs all the way to the bank. A classic case of this is, and take a deep breath because I'm going to break a no-talk rule, a classic, but the kingdom of God's got to be a place where we can be out loud about stuff. But a classic case of this is the whole abortion issue. And see, here, the way the world proposes the problem has made, su has made such inroads that a lot of you right now have, man, you got buzzers going off. You're getting nervous right now, aren't you? Huh? Uh, you know, your pulse is going up. And, and there'll be a mechanism inside of you, in, in, in the minds of some, that are going to be trying to immediately fit me into a slot. Well, is he on this side or is he on that side? Because you're thinking in the categories of the kingdom of this world. So you want to know, uh, how does this guy vote? I bet I can sniff it out by what he's going to say. And how is he subtly trying to encourage us to vote? And I'm just going to tell you out loud, I'm not here to talk about how you're going to vote. I want to talk about a distinct kingdom of God. Might there be a distinct kingdom of God way of approaching this issue? 
In the kingdom of the world, the way the thing plays out is you got a pro-choice group and you got a pro-life group and, and you got the rights of the mother pitted against the rights of the unborn and the two sides are poles apart and are locked in and they don't talk to each other. They talk past each other and holler at each other and they're both trying to rally troops and they use a lot of slogans and propaganda and they demonize their opponent so that pro-choice people are baby killers and pro-life people are women haters and things of that sort. Some of the rhetoric I find to just be uh, amazing and neither side works together to do what every poll has shown the majority of Americans want, and that is to create a society where abortions are at least as rare as possible. But they're not working together for that because they're too busy fighting each other on, on, on the two sides. And that, wrapped up into all that, is a bunch of questions that are very difficult, in fact, impossible to answer in any way that would be agreed upon by all reasonable and good-intentioned people. A lot of metaphysical questions. When does personhood begin? When does the soul enter the, the baby? When does it take on the image of God? And who should make these decisions? The, the, the world has never had a consensus on this. Western culture's never had a consensus on this. And the church has never had a consensus on that. Some people, the traditionists, thought that the, uh, the, the soul entered uh, the baby at the moment of conception. Others thought, like St. Augustine, it came in the second trimester. And others, like St. Thomas, thought it happened at birth because the Bible says that God breathed, breathed into Adam the breath of life and he became a living soul. And so there's always been disagreement upon that. And how do you resolve these issues? Everyone has strong opinions, but there's no way of settling it in a publicly agreeable way. What makes it even come more complicated is wrapped up with all that is the fact that parties and candidates always come in packages. There's always a litany of issues. And so as a person's trying to vote on this whole thing, they got to weigh their feelings about abortion uh, versus their feelings about, you know, where the candidate stands on the issues of homelessness or poverty or the economy, domestic affairs, foreign affairs, and a litany of other questions. That's why a lot of us are terribly conflicted when we go to the voting booth because we feel so strongly about these two things, but the, the, person, that we, uh, the person who endorses one doesn't endorse the other, and so it's a complicated thing. Which is why we always carry coins and flip it and say, okay, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> My question, see, and then what happens is this. If the church accepts that way of defining the issue and that way of trying to resolve the issue, which is really saying it's unresolvable, if the church accepts that and invites the bait and wants to give God authority to one of those two political positions, the church ends up dividing. And we, we inherit the conflict of the world. And we don't do the distinctly kingdom thing we can do about this because we're conditioned to think that we are doing the kingdom thing by voting one way or another. And you find people who think the kingdom of God is on either side of this. What we do a half hour every four years or maybe every two years becomes our kingdom thing and we feel good about that. Now, I want to ask the question, is there a, a distinct kingdom of God way of looking at this? And what I'm wondering is this, why do we, kingdom of God people, why, whatever you think about how you're going to weigh in on the kingdom of the world way of looking at this issue. Why do we need to accept that way of proposing the problem? Why do we need to pit the rights of the unborn versus the rights of, 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 of the mother? Why do we need to uh, accept their, their questions and, and accept their answers? Why do we need to try to resolve things in a kingdom of the world way? See, it seems to me this, that what, what we know is, is uh, and what we can rally around, whatever you think about all those other issues, is uh, God's the creator of life. 
And so what is growing in this uh, uh, woman's womb is, is, is a God creation. And that gives it infinite value. And I don't need to know all the metaphysics of the situation. I don't need to figure out exactly when personhood begins or when it's got a soul or, 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 or when it's made in the image of God. And I don't need to resolve the political issue either to be able to affirm that this, this thing growing inside of her, this creation of God, is infinitely precious. And I don't need to know anything about this woman. I don't need to know how she got pregnant, whether she was promiscuous in the past, maybe she was raped. I don't need to know anything about that to know that Jesus died for this woman and therefore she's got unsurpassable worth, unsurpassable value. And I know that my job in life and your job in life is to live and act in such a way that we ascribe worth. This is the only kingdom question we need to live in, is to ascribe worth to this, uh, to this woman and to her child. To ascribe to value, uh, to, to, the only question we need to live in is, how do I love this woman and this child? How do I serve this woman and this child? How do I come underneath this woman and this child? How can we walk with this woman and this child in such a way that we're not just saying, you do this, but rather we do this, and we try to make it viable for her to go full term with it? Because you see, here's the thing. Anybody... Anybody can carry a sign. Anybody can vote. Anybody can holler. Anybody can say, you ought to do this. What I'm wondering is this, as kingdom people, who's going to do Calvary to this woman? Who's going to uh, uh, sacrifice of their time and their resources for this woman? Who will get in the trenches with this woman? Who will actually bleed to, to, to make it viable for this woman to go full term? Who will sacrifice of themselves and replicate Jesus to this woman? Who will walk with her in her times of fear? Who will walk with her in her times of economic woe? Who will help her confront her parents because she's afraid to do that? That's the distinctive kingdom thing that we can do. How can we bleed on behalf of this woman and come underneath her? That, I submit to you, is doing the kingdom of God, doing pro-life in a kingdom of God way. And it's got very little to do with what we do for a half hour of our life every four years. Let me tell you about Dorothy. Uh, Dorothy's, Dorothy's best friend had a best friend whose daughter got pregnant. And it turns out this daughter, and this happens a lot, uh, was closer to Dorothy than her mother. Just, uh, there's a lot of history and chemistry issues and whatever. Um, and uh, th this young lady was too afraid to talk to her mother and father because her mother and father were very strict Christians, and she was afraid that, that they would. She was 18, and she was afraid that they would just kick her out of the house. And uh, so she went to Dorothy, and she uh, just kind of opened up the situation to Dorothy, and she was seriously considering getting an abortion. Dorothy just, without judgment, embraced this young lady. And instead of telling her what to do, she said, what can we do? Oh, that word we is so important. I'm here with you. I'm going to walk with you on this. Now, are you sure you want to get an abortion? I mean, you know, you got to know the information, and, and, and uh, it, it, this is going to have long-time consequences. And are you acting out of fear here? How can I minister to your fear? How can I listen to your fear? I'm in this with you. We'll do this together. I think we together can walk through this thing. And so Dorothy gets involved in her life. She goes with this young lady to talk to uh, the parents. And unfortunately, the parents did reject her, did kick her out of the house. So Dorothy says, I got a place for you to live. I'll make a, I'll make a room. You can come and live here. And Dorothy sacrificed her friendship with this, uh, her best friend. She paid a price for this, but she was willing to do it. So the young lady stays there. And then Dorothy helps with the medical bills. Dorothy helps with the, the maternal, uh, uh, maternity clothing. Dorothy helps with the boyfriend issues and some legal issues that were involved in this. Dorothy walks w w with this woman and, and tells her, uh, uh, if you want to give this child up, 
I'll find this child a nice home. We'll make sure it gets a, into a wonderful home. And, and if you want to keep this child, then I would be honored to be its godparents. And, and I'll help raise this child. Because you see, it's not just what you do before the child's born, it's also what you do after the child's born. And see, Dorothy gets involved in this woman's life, and, and the result is that this woman is experiencing a kind of come under love that no ought to could have possibly given her. And she walks with this, uh, uh, Dorothy walks with this young lady, and they have the baby, and she ends up keeping the baby and helping raise the baby, and in time they, bring rec they brought reconciliation with the parents. That, I submit to you, is being pro-life, kingdom of God style. That's, you do it together. How can we, how can I come under you? How can I sacrifice to see this happen? And what you also need to know is this. Dorothy usually votes pro-choice. As she weighs all the issues, she usually votes pro-choice. But I submit to you that Dorothy is more pro-life than I am. And more pro-life than most people I know who vote pro-life, if it means they take a half hour every four years and vote a certain way. Because kingdom of God, it's about, the kingdom of God happens when we replicate Calvary, and that means we bleed. My vision for Woodland Hills Church is that we be pro-life Dorothy style. And that doesn't answer any of the cultural issues, but it does answer this issue. What's the unique, distinct thing that we can do? I'll never tell a person how to vote. I will tell a person how to live, because the gospel tells all of us how to live. And that's a very different kind of a question. My, my, my vision for Woodland Hills Church is that we'd be a place where we sacrifice on behalf of the mother, where we're willing to get into the trenches with the mother, where we trust love more than we trust law, where we trust power under more than we trust power over, where we embrace scared kids without judgment and get in the trenches with them and walk with them to make going full term a viability before and after the child is born. The one question we need to live in is how can we love this woman and her child? How can we serve them? How can we sacrifice for them? Now, not everyone's called to, to do what Dorothy did. For a lot of people, that's, that, that's not a feasible option. But my question is not how are you individually going to live out a Dorothy kind of pro-life thing, but here's the question, how can we together do that? And I'll answer that and end up this sermon by just going back to what I said before the offering. The kingdom of God happens when, the, when kingdom people bleed for others, when we sacrifice for others. And when we sacrifice of our offerings, it's the one thing we do together where we bleed together. And that supports a ministry that we have now that confronts women who are pregnant and don't want to be pregnant, and we handle them Dorothy style. My vision is that in the future, especially as we move into this youth center, that will be a magnet for, uh, for unwed pregnant young ladies who are scared. And I want to have people that are there for them. Now, maybe you can't, do, you can't sacrifice as Dorothy sacrificed in, in terms of your time and, and, and house and whatever. But we can all give a Dorothy sacrifice in terms of supporting a ministry where we do it together. One of the reasons why we're so intent on paying off this $5 million debt and this uh, Growing in the Spirit campaign is that that will free up a half a million dollars a year. How many Dorothys can we get with a half million dollars a year? How many kids can we affect with that? Now, this isn't only about administering the kids who are, and, and others who are pregnant and don't want to be pregnant. 
It's about just doing the kingdom of God. It's about everything we do, Dorothy style, where we come under people. It's the same mindset where we uh, treat people who are without homes and people who are without foods and marriages that are breaking up and kids that are confused and people that are empty and, and people that have got emotional or psychological problems. And all of that, what we are doing together insofar as we sacrifice together is ascribing unsurpassable worth to people who otherwise wouldn't know they have unsurpassable worth and trusting God to use that to build his kingdom and that is all that we are about. Always ask the question, what's the distinct kingdom of God way of looking at this issue? And what's the distinct kingdom of God way of responding to this issue? And we don't need to buy into all the problems and all the conflict and all the ambiguity of the kingdom of the world in order to do that one thing. Our life is profoundly simple. Our commission is profoundly simple. Keep your eye on the kingdom of God and be willing to follow it through, lay down your life for others. That's what it's all about. Would you close your eyes? I just want to pray a prayer here. If you're here this morning and you're not a kingdom of God person, uh, you've never aligned yourself with this radical, what looks foolish to the world, power under, follow Jesus community, you've never surrendered your life to him, I encourage you to do that. No, you know what? Let me do this. You want to do that now? <laughs> uh, if you're here and you, you've, you, and this isn't about religion. It's about, do you want to join this radical countercultural thing, this mustard seed kingdom that God is growing, and follow Jesus. If you want to do that right now, would you just raise your hand? And I'm just going to pray for you from up here. Back there, a couple of hands. Uh, up here, wonderful, I see that hand. Just raise your hand. You, it looks foolish to the world, but this is the hope of the world. Over there, I see that hand. Wonderful. Anybody else? You're signing your life away. I'm not going to kid you about this. This isn't an easy road to tow, but it gives your life meaning, and it goes on forever. I consider it a pretty good deal. Anybody else want to uh, become a part of this? We got four or five people. Wonderful. Okay, those who raised your hand, we're going to pray with you this very simple prayer. This isn't magic. It just expresses your commitment and begins a walk that will go on forever. Pray it from the depths of your heart. We'll pray with you. Heavenly Father, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you love me despite my sins. And I believe that I'm in need of forgiveness. Forgive my sin. Cleanse me. And put into my heart a Jesus attitude. Jesus' own spirit. And help me live for you in this radical kingdom life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm so glad to have you guys aboard. I am so glad to have you guys aboard. I am so glad to have you guys aboard. All right. Now look at If you raised your hand this morning, or if you prayed that prayer and you didn't raise your hand because you were scared that I might do something else, I understand that. But would you please take a minute out and come up here to my right and your left. There's a wonderful lady who would love to give you some literature that will help you get started on the Christian life. I want to encourage all of us as we leave this place to always be asking the distinct kingdom question. How can I, in this situation, express outrageous love, unsurpassable worth to another at cost to myself? 
Go out and be radical missionaries, kingdom disciples to a world that desperately needs it. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you.